We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Breaking down the all-important running back position. That's what we're going to do today on Stealing Bananas. I've been Gresh from a newsletter. I've been Gresh.com with me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all his great work at Rotoviz. We're going to jump into running backs today. Obviously, I'm in a great position here where I get to talk to the not just the inventor of the zero RB strategy, but the writer of the zero RB watch list every August that inevitably names some of the most valuable players in all of fantasy because running back is the position where you know drafting a double digit round player can can net you a first round type of value sort of the easiest. I mean maybe you could argue that it can happen with quarterbacks or other positions, but certainly as soon as one major injury happens at running back, we see these massive value shifts. The best example that comes to my mind is going back into the preseason last year when Cam Akers got injured and Daryl Henderson immediately rose like eight rounds. And so you see these massive shifts that you aren't going to see at other positions, depending on who's available. It's a very opportunity-based position. But I think probably one of the things that's lost a little bit with zero RB is, or any of these discussions of you know late running backs, is how valuable the position still is. We, it's not that we don't think running backs are a valuable position. It's kind of funny that it gets discussed in these terms of like, we hate running backs. Because you, I always go back, and we've gone back and talked to, to Pete Overs at this, this offseason already, but go back to that team he had that finished top 10 in the underdog uh, $1 million best ball tournament last year. And I, what I think is so fascinating about the team, he had a couple you know, key players you had to have. He had Jamar Chase. He had some other players. But his tough first receivers were you know, Devonta Adams and Keenan Allen, guys that didn't necessarily have ceiling seasons for them. And a big part of that team was, even though he went zero running back, he had this perfect blend of the right running backs late. The running backs were still very, very valuable. He had, I believe it was Tony Pollard and Alexander Madison, who both had big years, James Conner, and then has Rashad Penny and Sony Michelle, who came on big time late and were these huge players in the, the tournament that you need. But he had some of that early production. Madison had some of those spike weeks this really nice blend of running backs. And you look at this and you go, this is a perfect zero RB build for the 2021 season. But that's sort of the whole point. Even when you're going zero RB, you still want to be able to hit those good values late. So we're definitely going to talk about that today. But it's not that the position doesn't matter. We, we know 
running back is a very valuable position. It is. It's hugely important. And getting those big weeks, especially in the fantasy playoffs, but you have to get the production to get you there, right? Zero RB is structured in a way to allow you to get the running back points that are necessary and to build super teams. But zero RB isn't the only way that we're approaching this. And we've talked about how we're going to build some anchor running back teams. We might even build a few hyper fragile teams. Connor O'Driscoll had a fantastic article on Rotoviz uh, within the last week. Just if you haven't really looked into how to build a hyper fragile team, where you might build it, what formats it might be successful in, you know, why it works, but also specifically how you have to execute it. Because one of the reasons why the results aren't actually that great for it is that most of the managers who start down that path make a ton of mistakes as they go forward. As is the case with Zero RB, you have to execute those things correctly. But then I'm excited about this because kind of with the concept that we're doing here with the positions, our goal is to create as many points as we can at the least possible price. And obviously everybody is doing that. But as we kind of go through the positions and look at different tier breaks, but also sort of pricing opportunities, I think it's helpful because it allows us to sort of crystallize our targets within know different types of builds that we might do so we're going to start out here we're going to look at some guys who might be available in round one round two for your anchor type of build we're going to look at some players you might draft in rounds three and four if you do a unique anchor where you actually start with a couple of wide receivers is 2022 a good season to do that we'll look at if you want to go with the three running backs in the first four rounds how you would need to do that then obviously we'll jump into the dead zone a little discussion of are these legit dead zone backs or other opportunities there, then we'll look late at zero RB. One of the kind of fun things about the zero RB candidates, whether it's this time of the year or in August, is that if you have an anchor build, you can still use that guy who's perfect for zero RB. Those running back points, as you mentioned in the intro, they're important. You need to score them kind of regardless of how you build. So I'm excited for this. We do want to jump right in because we know we're going to run up against not exactly a, a firm time limit, but We've the clock stopped. is going to be against us. We, we've yeah. never used a time limit as our, as our limit. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We do want to jump right in. And we, and you know, certainly at the top, we're, we're drafting Jonathan Taylor, Christian McCaffrey. You and I have talked a lot about it. Uh, that, you know, that one on one discussion throughout the offseason. Those are two guys very much worth talking about. One of the things that I love about drafting with you and talking with you and, and, and certainly just this idea, I guess, of, you know, practicing what you preach there. It's so funny, you know, Zero RB always gets this criticism, but then also we see sometimes whenever, Sean, you draft a running back, people are quick to point out, oh, the Zero RB guy drafted a running back in the first two rounds. Curious, Ooh, curious. But you do occasionally draft running backs in the early rounds. But one of the things that I do love is I don't think I knew until we started playing together as much as we have over the last few years that you are, are how selective you are. There are in the first couple of rounds, maybe only going to be five targets for you in a given year. And that will include the, you know, the, the premium players at 101 or 102 if you're considering them. So we have Taylor and, and McCaffrey. There might be three more guys through round two that you'll be willing to consider rather than the wide receiver options at those ranges. And if you step back and you look at the concept of zero RB and the big picture theory and the way that you want your exposures to go, a lot of your drafts aren't going to have running back picks in the first or the second round anyway. So it makes sense to be selective, but that's where we're going to start is which of these running backs in the first couple of rounds may actually be worth passing up the superior pick of a wide receiver. And we say the superior pick in large part because of, you know, what I talked about at the beginning of the show, where 
you know, I said Pete had the perfect zero RB team. He didn't. He didn't even have Leonard Fournette, who was sort of the perfect zero RB player last year. His first running back was Raheem Mostert. I mean, this team could have been even better. So you can get that opportunity cost, or the opportunity cost of taking a running back early is in part that you're missing out on those shots later, as well as the wide receiver uh, fall off from an, you know, an early star that we have a tendency to, that we see have a tendency to perform very well. They didn't perform as well as they could have last year compared to, you know, wide receivers in later rounds that aren't going to be as productive. So who are the running backs that we're, we're willing to take in those first couple of rounds? Well, Ben, after we go for Taylor and McCaffrey at the one and two, we then get into the middle of first round and we have some tricky choices, right? Austin Eckler, Derek Henry, Najee Harris, and you look at these two really high scoring backs from last year. I think you have to start with them and say, are they viable options? One of the reasons that Eckler is there is he scored so many receiving points. We love the receiving backs. We talked a little bit last year that he was right kind of there on the edge of what you could legitimately talk about in terms of expected points and where that would put him to then jump off and have this extremely efficient season. Because when we're drafting in the first couple of rounds, we need to have this elite combination where you're talking about expected points numbers in that 18 to 21 range so that then you can pair that with one of these epic seasons where a back does everything right and scores four or five fantasy points above expectation. The interesting thing here is that Henry and Eckler were there with Jonathan Taylor as being kind of the three main guys who were above four fantasy points over expectation last season. So both of those guys really hit in terms of you know creating the big plays, scoring touchdowns. One of the things that we look at with Eckler is that he was actually at three fantasy points over expectation as a receiver. And you go in and one of the easy ways to kind of break it down, you can look at the stealing signals tool. I know you've got a lot of notes for us for the show from that today, but averaging half a receiving touchdown per game my concern would be that I love these guys. They're sort of opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of you know, what you're looking at stylistically with a first-round pick, but they're stars, and I'm always drawn to the stars as opposed to just making a workload argument. But the red flags for both of them in terms of being able to maintain that and, and really kind of being at the opposite ends of the spectrum as opposed to more hybrid type players where you could have that elite rushing and elite receiving upside it seems to me like everything has to go right for these players and then even if it does you, you maybe have a little bit lower ceiling than you need now derrick henry a real outlier last year and that i mean he was creating the points that drafters needed before he got hurt yeah henry is such an interesting one because when you when you talk about you know the stealing signals tool i'm, I'm always looking at high value touches which are the you know, receptions, touches inside the 10-yard line, those you know, high equity touchdown opportunities. That's only about a quarter of all running back touches. And so then you can look at it in terms of like the percentage of the touches that are these high value touches that generate a lot more fantasy scoring. And Henry's a guy who and Henry's a guy who throughout his career has tended to be sort of below average in his percentage of touches that are these high value touches that we want. He has a lot of the lower value rush attempts. Now there's two really notable points there one he gets a ton of low value touches so he can still depending on you know the season have a decent number of high value touches along with that 
even if it's a, a you know a poor proportion. And two, he can be pretty efficient on the low value touches. I mean, there's a few guys that can just be incredibly efficient. And so that's something that we have to note with him. The question for him is how much sort of below average is his touch mix going to be in terms of its favorability to fantasy football? Last year, it was a little bit closer to average, if you will, or he was starting to get a little bit more receiving work. And some of the things um, that was allowing him to do were, were promising. We saw sort of a, a greater ceiling, but also he was just getting a ton more touches. He was averaging like 30 touches per game when he got hurt. We're talking about a player who is, you know, now coming off an injury and a year older, well into the ages where we would be concerned about, you know, running back longevity. He's certainly a special player, but not one that I'm on strictly on this idea that I, you know, I, it's hard to imagine he's going to have the monster workload again. And it's hard to imagine that he's suddenly going to have this really nice trap percentages percentage of his touches that are the high value touches. Eckler is sort of the flip side where he's getting all throughout his career, a really nice percentage of his total touches are high value touches. But the big new thing for him last year was the green zone touches, specifically those touches around the red zone. He had 25 carries inside the 10 last year, scored 10 touchdowns on those, very efficient. In his first four years, it was never, you know, as big of a workhorse as he was last year, but combined for just 30 green zone rush attempts over, you know, his first four seasons. He had 40 total green zone touches in his first four seasons. Again, he had 20 seven just last year alone. And so that's what was a huge driver of this big spike in touchdowns for Eckler last year. The concern for me is, you know, you were talking about that his expected points got up into that range where suddenly it looked like he might be at that number. He looks like he could be a first round running back. My, I, I would argue, and I think it is sort of inarguable that is, right there it's right there in the rushing ep that's what we talked about last year you weren't necessarily as high on him last year i recall because his rush ep had never been that impressive suddenly has all of these high value rush attempts near the goal line that really helped his overall expected point total the question is will he maintain that degree of work inside the 10 yard line and i think the answer is it's very questionable it's very questionable from a couple perspectives one part of the reason he was used so heavily down there last year certainly they probably wanted to use him but the other guys were not very effective. They did not like Larry Roundtree. They did not like Joshua Kelly. They were mixing these guys in and they weren't very effective. Then they go out and they draft Isaiah Spiller. And so that's one of the reasons that Isaiah Spiller is a guy that's really interesting because if he fits into sort of that big back role and starts to take some of those looks, that's going to be tough for Eckler. It's going to be positive, obviously, for Spiller if he can be effective. The other part of it is just that, look, he was really efficient on those touches too. And like you said, he was very efficient. Uh, relative to his expected points totals, even though they were high. <laughs> he ends up with a 20 touchdown season. He's incredibly good. But I mean, just the, the ability to maintain 20 touchdowns, I'm buying that more with a player like Jonathan Taylor than I am with Austin Eckler. And Eckler has been very upfront in that he actually doesn't want to touch the ball quite as much as he did last season. He's excited about Spiller coming and taking some of those touches. Unfortunately, some of them could be high value touches. We would expect that generally speaking if you're going to have a lesser talented player that they will grab some of the low value touches which won't hurt him as much but he's just already kind of right there at that edge where everything has to be perfect for him to be a first round running back and 
if it's not perfect, then you're looking a little bit more at a player who you're specifically hoping is going to have those spike weeks in the fantasy playoffs to generate that type of production, which is a consideration, right? You can have a guy who maybe scores a little bit less throughout the course of the season. If he stays healthy, he's not going to kill your team. And then if he has the big weeks, when it matters, then you could benefit from that. But I think these guys can't really be in the consideration for us in the first round. We have Najee Harris, who had the extreme workload last year, but doesn't have the efficiency, could take the jump this next year. But Ben, I think it's a little bit more interesting to actually sort of fast forward ahead and look at Dalvin Cook and Alvin Kamara. These guys sort of going at the one-two turn, Kamara falling into the mid-second round. They have really four things that are very similar and then maybe one thing that is quite a bit different. We know these two guys were the stars. They're in that sort of two, three mix in terms of where they've been going the last couple of years. Last year, they were among four backs who were in that 17 to 20 expected point per game range. Now that was a drop for both of them in terms of where they actually finished from their averages from 19 and 20, right? So they've been generating more expected points over the previous two years. They'd also been among the most efficient backs in the NFL across that two-year period, both of them over three FPOE per game, right? So you're generating three points more than your workload would indicate. And that goes back to the talent. We don't have a lot of questions, at least in the 2019 to 2020 time period, about where those guys are. They're absolute stars. They're a little bit different. But when you watch them play, it jumps off the screen. The talent is there. 2020, both of them went negative in terms of fantasy points over expectation. And the thing that we can't really avoid, and it's similar to all of these red flags that we saw with Ezekiel Elliott as he's continued to decline with his career is that these guys are no longer 22, 23 years old. And to a certain extent, they've already done a little bit better kind of mid career than a lot of the running backs that we've seen over the last decade. The other sort of complicating factor for them is this off field element the one area where I think they are going in kind of two different directions is Dalvin Cook is in this offense where you've got a new coach. Most football followers are expecting the Vikings to be dynamic. Now, that could take some of the workload away from Cook, but it could make it easier again to be efficient. Alvin Kamara, yeah, I mean, the Saints have added some pieces. They're hoping that Michael Thomas will be healthy, but there's still a real possibility that the Saints will be a struggling offense that doesn't reflect or just doesn't look like this juggernaut that Kamara had with Drew Brees during his peak. Yeah. And the big concern for him is again, I'm going to go back to that percentage of five value touches. He was below average this year, which he prior, he looked more like Austin Eckler. There's only two backs sort of on the first page of the, the heaviest uh, usage running backs. Uh, in total touches when I'm looking at the stealing signals tool. There's only two that had a, a trap percentage lower than 70%, which means more than 30% of their touches were high-value touches. That's a range that Alvin Kamara used to sit in. That's a good thing. Austin Eckler is one of those. I was just talking about if he loses those touchdowns, it's going to be concerned, but he's still going to have a pretty solid floor with the receiving. We've we've always seen him in that range. Kamara looked like that for all for most of his career. Unfortunately, this past year, He's up in the high 70%. I mentioned that about 75% would be about league average. So he was at 78%, meaning a little bit 
higher percent of his touches than league average were these low value touches were just your standard rush attempts. He only catches 47 passes. Recall that he had the really uh, interesting stat line of, of catching exactly 81 passes for his first few seasons. Uh, he's way down from that in his first year without Drew Brees. I think there's a lot of concerns with Kamara now and the way that they used him in a little bit of a different offense last year. Can that shift? I would expect it to shift. I would expect him to be uh, catching more than 47 balls this year. But it, that was a that was a red flag for me. A couple of other backs that we're looking at here in round two just have sort of crazy profiles. In the Aaron Jones and Nick Chubb, in the bottom third of the last third of round two, and we know that those guys have consistently put up plus fantasy points over expectation seasons. You go into the advanced stat tool and look at Nick Chubb, and he's going to stand out where you're talking about before contact, after contact, evasion rate, you know, missed tackles, uh, broken tackles, it just an absolute superstar. But last season, those two backs were in this 12.5 to 13.5 ep range which been if you're getting that type of workload you have to have you know 60 yard runs every game to make it work from a fantasy perspective at that price now with jones there's this possibility that he catches an absolute ton of passes in 2022 with the way their receiving core looks he's also in a situation where if A.J. Dillon were to get hurt, then he jumps into being a top five overall pick type of value. And we do like to, like to look at these contingency-based plays with the zero RB picks. These guys are going in 8 through 12. But if you're already being selected in the second round and you actually need that injury just to really be worth a pick in the first two rounds, I mean, you've not left yourself a lot of margin to work with. Chubb's situation might be even worse in that he has multiple quality backs on that team with him do you see a path for either of these guys to you know return value at the prices that they're still at so chubb some might say you're being a little unfair where you know cream hunt could get hurt but we saw that last year so i mean we saw what they did they still didn't lean on him in the way that we would want him them to in fantasy they used Ernest johnson alongside chubb They've more or less told us for multiple years now that they're not going to make him into this fantasy superstar, but he's so talented that he still goes in the second round. When you talk about those EP numbers, I mean, there's backs that we can get with reasonable projection with those types of EP numbers in like the seventh and eighth round. Yes, they're not as talented as Nick Chubb, but there's just really no way you can bet on his efficiency being that good when we've seen I mean, you're, you're betting on uh, a role change. You're betting on maybe an injury, freeing up more pass volume for Chubb, something to be different than what we've seen throughout his career. But we've seen those injuries and they haven't happened. So, no, he's not a guy that I'm on pretty much at all. Jones is interesting because when we talk about that extreme efficiency, you kind of touched on it when you said he could catch a ton of passes. It's easier to be, you know, a spike efficiency player in the passing game, frankly, and especially if you're getting those running back air yards that I love to talk about from time to time. He – actually will run some routes down the field. He's playing with Aaron Rodgers. He can catch some 25, 30-yard touchdowns sometimes. That's going to be pretty big for him. You know, you said Chubb's going to have to rip off all these 60-yard touchdown runs, and maybe that's true of Aaron Jones too. But Jones, it might be a little easier for him to get the big plays just because he's actually running routes down the field like a receiver potentially. 
I still don't think I like the price in the second round on him. He was interesting early in the offseason when he was kind of falling to the fourth, but he's gotten hyped up quite a bit. A lot of talk about those splits in his receiving role when Devonta Adams is on the field or off. Very small sample. I definitely think there's some value there, but the Packers are going to have to have other answers. To me, that was like an in-season answer when Devonta Adams gets hurt. Okay, we're going to focus on Aaron Jones. I don't think you're going to see for a full season, them lean on Aaron Jones that heavily as a receiver. They're going to have to develop other answers in the passing game. And so those splits, way more extreme than I would expect this season. The guy that I really like in this range of this sort of veteran mold of the last few that we've talked about, we haven't even hit on like a Joe Mixon, but Leonard Fournette, I I don't like him, but like we have to talk about him. He's the other one of the high volume backs that I mentioned that has this impressive trap percentage alongside Austin Eckler. He's the only other one with more than say 225 total touches that was sub 70% trap. His trap percent was actually 62%. That's really low. That's like, you know, uh, third down back low, meaning the percentage of his touches that were either receptions or green zone touches was massive. He caught a ton of balls. He got a ton of looks in close because Tampa's offense is so good because Tom Brady throws to his back so much. Fournette looks, he was second in the entire NFL in high value touches, just one behind Eckler last year. And those guys, I mean, they narrowly edged Najee Harris, who had a ton. A lot of Harris's came with that big receiving role early that sort of faded. And those three were the only ones who had 90 plus high value touches. Jonathan Taylor had 81 no one else had more than 75. So you're talking about like a pretty big gap with those guys up near the top. Fournette, clearly the cheapest of those high-value touch stars from last year, going late in the second. I see him in the third quite a bit. He's an interesting one for me. I don't want to be taking him, but running back is definitely a, a position that is influenced by situation. It's influenced by the offense. We talk about these haves and have not offenses. This is obviously a have offense. It's also an offense that doesn't probably have as good of receiving weapons this season. We might see Brady need to check down even more. Now they brought in Rashad White. And all of this argument, when we get to the zero RB candidates a little bit later in the show, I mean, I think it's a great argument for Rashad White. I'll be really surprised, Sean. I don't want to pin you to anything. But when you write, write that zero RB watch list later in the offseason, be really surprised if we don't see Rashad White on that list. But what do you think about Fournette with this late second round price tag? I mean, I want to talk him up as much as possible because I want him to go in the first so I can then not draft him. But at this price, it's really hard not to. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah. Let's get him into the first so we don't have to worry about it. I mean, Fournette is one of five guys last season who gets to eight plus on both sides of the equation, right? Rush EP, receiving EP. I don't think it's going to come as a surprise to anybody. Their backs on that list are Najee Harris, Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey. Obviously didn't play for a lot of the season, but still goes into that range. And then Austin Eckler. So you're talking about backs who are more expensive. And this isn't the first time that Fournette has done it, right? He did this with the Jaguars as well. We know that he can have both sides there and we're really looking for backs you know if we want to be perfectly honest about the backs that we're comfortable with in the first round we'd be talking about guys who are double digit on both sides you're talking about those peak Le'Veon bell and david johnson types of seasons i mean it's not impossible that fournette could take yet another step within the context of this offense as you mentioned and kind of be that type of back in which case the mid-second round would be a pretty big discount now i think there are still some question marks about the talent and with white there you know you have this potential siphon and i think that that probably still makes it a situation where i'm not targeting him but i wouldn't necessarily tell people that they shouldn't i'm also not targeting james connor in the third round who i think is actually very very similar from that perspective and a little bit of this is not chasing just last year because when we talk about the profile that a player needs, you're looking at just so much that has to go right and so much talent that the person has to have. But both of these guys have done it before. And so the fact that there was this gap in between and now they're a little bit older, it's still going to be very tempting because you have Tampa Bay, you have the Arizona Cardinals. Those are offenses that are going to get it done. So from that point, it's just it's a tantalizing kind of pick to make. I still want the player to be even better if I'm going to pay for them at this level, which kind of brings us to sort of our third group of, of similar players, but players who are being priced differently and have different offensive contexts. So I want to ask you about Joe Mixon, who you mentioned a second ago, DeAndre Swift, and David Montgomery, all of them in that 16 EP range. So again, quite a bit more than what we're talking about for someone like an Aaron Jones or a Nick Chubb. That 16 can kind of work as a starting point if you think that they're going to then potentially go on a run where either they have a breakout season or they have this stretch and obviously you'd want it to co- coincide with the fantasy playoffs but to where they could be at 19 or 20 for a while at a few points on top now the thing with joe mixon is that he's in this elite offense but even within the context of the Bengals offense he's not a guy that you expect to do much more than two fantasy points over expectation that would still be a real win for him so at the one two turn i mean you're talking about a guy who's kind of probably sealing out in that 19 to 21 range yes if you got 21 points for him at the 112 i mean you'd be happy with that but i mean that's probably your best case scenario swift a guy in detroit i mean the detroit offense could go a lot of different ways they don't have to ride him quite as much this season if they don't want to that could be good and bad with swift it's a talent play and then Montgomery going in the fourth round because he's someone that, despite the broken tackles, doesn't generate the types of big plays that you need. There's a concern about being able to maintain the receiving workload with Justin Fields. 
And then the Bears are probably on the opposite end of the spectrum from the Bengals in terms of what we would think the team does in terms of helping him out. I don't really see the common thread between these three guys. Can you help me? Well, they're all 16 expected point per game players last season. But then I think from that kind of workload foundation, they very much branch out to being different types of people. Right. So Swift is one that did that with a, you know, strong touch mix, right? He was getting a ton of receptions. He was getting a lot of work around the goal line as well. And as a percentage of sort of his overall rush work, he would be the guy that you could see taking the next step. Montgomery, I'm with you, I think is sort of maxed out. Joe Mixon to me is very similar to Austin Eckler where, you know, we always talk about you don't want to pay for pass production at running back. And so I like the way you sort of put that with Fournette and Connor coming off these big years. Mixon also had that career high TD spike into like year four, year five, like Eckler. That's, that's why I see them sort of a similar. Yes. Those, you know, that huge touchdown boost came in a better offense. That better offense is going to be here again. And yet I'm not really buying that. That's something, you know, that's something I want to pay for the, the ensuing season. Cause I think it's still possible for Mixon. You know, he jumps up to 16 touchdowns last year, had never hit 10. I would expect him to be at least in the 10 to 12 range. And same with Eckler. I mean, I don't think these guys are going to be low touchdown guys this year necessarily, but it's kind of hard to articulate the, the gap between, you know, 10 or 12 touchdowns, which is good, and Mixon at 16, which is basically one per game. Eckler at 20 last year. I mean, that's essentially the biggest gap between why these guys were so much different. Mixon was a little bit better as a runner than his career high in terms of yardage. He was one off his career high in receptions, a little bit better than his career high in receiving yardage as well. So he did have his best career yards from scrimmage season, but really it was just all these extra touchdowns that were the the huge bump for him. I think with Chris Evans coming on, looking like sort of like the new Gio Bernard, the receiving stuff, not having taken a huge step forward last year and really it just being the touchdowns, makes him sort of an easy pass for me. So then we've gotten to the end of our anchor running back range. Well, there's one there's one more guy I want to talk about. Okay. And that's Javante Williams because – Oh, Javante, yes. He's challenging, obviously, with Melvin Gordon back. I've made the case recently that the Broncos waiting for Gordon to, to look elsewhere for the multiple, you know, multiple years on a contract and then finally bringing him back the week of – the draft probably speaks well to Javante, what they meant, what they think about him, what they were planning for. Javante's had his own commentary about how he likes how they work off each other. Well, I still think, I think these guys are going to go into the season sort of 50, 50 and Gordon was good last year, but I think you have to expect Javante was a 21 year old back last year. He's going into his age 22 season that if one of them is, is going to be better this year, it's going to be Javante taking a step forward. If one of them is going to be worse, it's going to be Melvin Gordon being a little bit, older we have a new coaching staff again they didn't prioritize gordon in free agency i think we could start the season in a 50 50 split but i think we could pretty quickly shift to like a 65 35 and and javante was the one who had the you know the higher share of high value touches on say a per snap basis uh as a percentage of his total touches however you want to look at that i think he still has a ton upside just even if gordon's healthy and then there's you know this potential that he's the next superstar running back should, you know, Gordon has to sort of miss some time, but where are you at on him? Do you think he's worth taking shots at in the second round? Williams is going to go in the same basic bucket 
as Swift for me, where I like the relative uncertainty that we still have. Now, we've got a couple seasons for DeAndre Swift where he's been absolutely electric, but hasn't completely solidified himself as a superstar within his own offense, much less within the NFL. And that portion of it gives you some risk when you're drafting there in round two. But I like the fact that with either of those guys, we could be talking about them next year as having the touch mix and the talent to be in the first five picks. And I think in the second round, if you have questions, the, the one possible answer has to be that they would be there. And so I like both of those guys. And we've done a little bit of this for the different positional shows, but I like them a little bit more in underdog, I think, where you can get them toward the end of the second round, definitely in the second half of the second round a lot. Now, Swift is a riser on a draft-by-draft draft basis. Sometimes he does go early, but it's almost sort of fun to mix them in with some of these hyper-fragile builds where you go with a Jonathan Taylor or a Christian McCaffrey, hit that second running back, and then maybe come back around with Barkley. Their FFPC prices are a little tricky because there are still wide receivers, I think, that you're wanting to prioritize at that point. So the, the subtle differences in the way the first two rounds play out in the different formats actually does move my sort of overall strategic approach and then tactically when we're looking at the first couple of rounds and the specific guys it moves a little bit and the ffpc and really in both formats once jamar chases off the board you know you're like okay the second half of the first round not nearly as appealing and yet we know that number one obviously you don't give up but then number two that could be where the breakout player comes from i mean last year it was frustrating to have a pick at the end but Jonathan Taylor came out of that stretch. I mean, it actually was the stretch that you wanted. I think that in the FFPC, you've got some tight ends that you're really looking at there. Do a little bit of a, a foreshadowing. We've recorded our tight end to show it was a lot of fun. We are excited about Kyle Pitts. He could be someone wrapping around with guys like CD Lamb and Stephon Diggs, where you might want to do that one-two build kind of in that first second turn in the ffpc because obviously you get those tight end premium points so that's kind of how i'm looking at so your it answer there. is you just don't want to take running backs got it <laughs> yeah no i mean it, it really is i don't think that the first and second rounds after the big two really offer us anything anything do, do you have a guy that you like i mean i'll i'll mix in swift i'll mix in javante i'll mix in leonard fournette but no no, uh, Saquon, you've been high on and is somebody that we have not discussed yet either. I think you have to like him at the two, three turn as a just sort of a pure talent play as well. But it's not it's it's not a year, I, I think, where a lot of those other running backs scream that they're worth those those picks, frankly. And I think they're going there in part because of what you discussed after Jamar Chase. The receiver question is very complicated. We still have Devontae Adams there. Change teams, a lot of concerns. Tyreek Hill's fallen a little bit, but also, you know, change teams, and, and that's why he's fallen. He's still going high. People don't want to take those guys. Stefan Diggs coming off a down year. CeeDee Lamb is getting, you know, going very, very high, sort of as, you know, we project that next step that we were hoping for last year and didn't really come. You know, had he made that next step, he'd probably be going sort of in the same range, but we're, we're almost baking in that he did make a, a step forward that he didn't necessarily make. Debo Samuel, some concerns with Trey Lance. I think it's this lack of, you know, comfort with the next group of receivers also. But I like what you were saying about Kyle Pitts. There's 
and I'm more comfortable taking those receivers than a lot of these running backs. So then we're again sort of careening toward our end of the show. We have so much to cover. So let's let's jump by Barkley at the time. We've got a few notes on him. We do like him. He obviously is the home run pick with a lot of potential weaknesses. Then you get into this next group where you have Brees Hall, you have Cam Akers, who recovered so quickly and then didn't look good, and that's hurting him. You have Ezekiel Elliott, I think, as the pure dead zone type of back. You have Antonio Gibson, a guy with a lot of talent, but unfortunately a pure dead zone type of back. You have Josh Jacobs, a pure dead zone type of back. Now, Jacobs was at 17 and a half EP from week 12 on last season, but that corresponded with a time range where Kenyon Drake hardly played. And we know that not only is Drake probably back and healthy, but they've added more players to that mix. It's really hard to see how he could jump past that. I mean, AJ Dillon, Clyde Edwards, Alaire, Kenneth Walker, those guys look like pretty pure dead zone type of backs. Although Edwards, Alaire, there's still some contingency based plays. The two names that I didn't give, and I also didn't give Elijah Mitchell, probably again, a pure dead zone back when you look at the way that they're structuring their offense, what they've done in the past, what happens in year two for late round draft picks, even the ones who were good. But we do have a couple early backs, early round picks who have flashed unbelievable talent and there are a lot of questions about and that would be jk dobbins and travis etn dobbins is tricky right because he's not going to get those receiving touches that elevate a back like him but i do want to make a just a little bit of a pitch for him at his price he's someone who even as a rookie in the season where he didn't play a ton he averaged 16.9 points per game from week 11 on and that was on 52 percent of the snaps right? He leads the NFL in yards before contact. We've mentioned on the show before that both parts of it come into play when you're talking about how does it predict future fantasy scoring, but the yards before contact are not as expensive for you as a drafter. So you might look at that and say, well, that's a, an interesting little footnote. Leads in yards per carry. He's fourth in evasion rate, and that evasion rate is very split between broken tackles and forced missed tackles. I don't think that's a surprise when you watch him play and know what he brings to the table. The thing that I would note here is that in 2019, in a similar type of offense, Mark Ingram averaged 12.4 expected points per game, but added four points over. Dobbins was at three points over as a rookie when he didn't even play that much. And some of the fantasy points over expectation is going to be volume-based, right? The more times you touch the ball, the more opportunities you have to beat the expectation on those touches. Dobbins is going to have a touch mix that gives him a ceiling below what we like, but there's sort of these individual spike week opportunities. And there's again, this offense in terms of the offense carrying the player and perhaps creating more opportunities than a similar type of offense would. Any interest for you with Dobbins or ETN, who's in some ways on the opposite end of the spectrum where we'd expect almost this Alvin Kamara-ish workload. One of the arguments for him last year was that Kamara came in, Mark Ingram established but Kamara had almost nine expected points just as a receiver. And then obviously his efficiency was elite in part because of Drew Brees in the offense, but in part because of his own talent. Now the Jacksonville offense probably doesn't do that, but we're also now talking about a situation where he's not going to actually be splitting with James Robinson, at least in the same way, Robinson recovering from a difficult injury. Maybe he makes it back and is part of this backfield, but it looks like it's ETN's backfield. 
Yeah, ETN, the other name you, you have to comp him to is DeAndre Swift, fourth-round pick. Um, you know, playing in a bad offense is a big element of that, why people don't necessarily want to buy into him. I, I mean, I'm putting a little bit of weight on the fact that he's playing with his college quarterback. They don't have great receivers. I think there is something to, you know, quarterback, running back, familiarity, um, or just, you know, certain quarterbacks are – tend to have these really high rates of, of passing to running backs. Lawrence didn't have like a massive rate last year, but the fact that he knows ETN, I think can, can bump that up. Um, I think you have to be really excited about his receiving role. I think with both of these backs, the part for me is when, when, you know, I just to kind of recalibrate the dead zone stuff. When I had done uh, original dead zone research and we talked about this last year, the guys that actually do hit in that range are the ones who haven't shown it yet. So you talk about not paying for pass production at running back. You talked about Ezekiel Elliott as being like the quintessential dead zone running back this year. This is a guy who's going where he's going because people are still chasing something that's probably gone. We've already seen him be this really high value, uh, high volume, productive uh, running back, and people have you know that nostalgia element. I, I remember when I won my league when I had Ezekiel Elliott on my team. And so he's getting bumped up because of something that's probably gone from his realistic range of outcomes, or that's a 90th percentile outcome for Zeke to, to bounce back to that type of player. That's an easy, like you said, easy one to spot in the dead zone. That That's your traditional stay away. Dobbins played his rookie year, came on strong late, missed all of last year, still has not shown us what a full season of a good J.K. Dobbins is. It's kind of like Javante Williams going into year two. We saw a similar sort of rookie year, and we didn't get to see his second year at all. But when, when we get to see a second year here in 2022, it could be something that we didn't really expect. Travis Etienne, we didn't get to see at all last year also. We have not seen at the NFL level. But I, I've contended on recent shows that you know he went one pick behind Najee Harris. For a lot of people like you and I, he was a better prospect than Najee Harris doesn't have the same type of workload expectation, but we don't want to buy running backs on workload alone because we know how fickle that is. I've argued that if ETN would have played basically at all last year, he would have done something that would have made him more expensive than this. Whether he would have had enough receiving in his profile, say he even plays five games, but he catches enough passes or he makes a couple of explosive plays or he scores a couple of touchdowns, whatever it is, when you're playing the running back position, there's a lot of ways to look good, quote unquote. I mean, look at Najee Harris. Didn't actually look great in a lot of different ways but just the pure volume, as long as ETN wasn't getting like five touches a game and being treated as a rotational player, which I don't think would have been the expectation for a first round pick. Yes, we have a new head coach in there and a, a different um, coaching staff than the one that was there when the pick was made, but you have to assume, and, and you talked about with James Robinson coming back from an Achilles that's almost certainly going to, I think is going to knock out his entire 2022 season, that ETN's going to have the runway available to play a lot. And if he does, I mean, it's just it's just clear to me that missing last year is why drafters are not buying in. There's this element, again, with the dead zone, as I describe it, it's sort of a wisdom of the crowds element. Ezekiel Elliott was a great example of a guy who's faded and it's probably not there anymore, his upside. But then there's guys like you mentioned, David Montgomery, Antonio Gibson, who've been pretty good. But the fact that drafters aren't buying in is also sort of the signal. We're not dumb in the fantasy community people aren't buying in for reasons for those players and those are the types of dead zone backs that don't tend to succeed they've shown us something and we're still not buying it 
There's not enough optimism for a reason. Elijah Mitchell might fit that because we did see a really strong season from him. Etienne and Dobbins, we're not buying in because we're not sure what they are. That's actually the kind of guy that can come out of the dead zone and be a superstar. And we talk about the dead zone and how crucially important it is to load up on the huge number of wide receiver points that are available at that same juncture. The two wide receivers immediately before Dobbins and ETN and ADP are DJ Moore and DK Metcalf, guys who probably have some quarterback questions but have established themselves as being such elite players might still be able to come through that. Ben, the seven wide receivers going immediately after Dobbins and ETN are Terry McLaurin, Mike Williams, Amari Cooper, Marquise Brown, Jerry Judy, Allen Robinson, and Chris Godwin. I'm not saying you can't hit on a guy there. There are a couple of names that I like okay, but we're I'm not looking at that group and saying, oh, I'm going to win my league because I draft one of those players. Yeah, it's an interesting range for the receivers this year where it does thin out a lot quicker into those you know really exciting upside profiles like to your point that those guys don't necessarily have as exciting profiles as maybe the receivers that you had to bypass to take a fourth round running back last year or a fifth round running back last year when you could bypass you know you might be bypassing like a t higgins last year which was a really exciting year two player obviously higgins didn't have the most amazing season but a strong one he's going even higher this year despite his injuries. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think that's even more of a reason. I It gets back to that build where if we don't take a running back in the first couple of rounds, if we go, you know, receiver, tight end, receiver, or receiver, 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 we take one of these running backs in the fourth. I mean, that's a really nice start, basically. And we talk all the time about this risk that you have when you think you're smarter than everybody else and you go against the structure. If you're going to make the pick there like that, you just it has to be very intentional and you have to have strong reasons for it. It doesn't necessarily mean that your reasons or your scenario eventually plays out. We can't predict the future, but we want to really make sure that we've looked at it and gone through the different paces there. We feel comfortable with those backs. Certainly not a case where you're going to try and get them in every single league or every single draft or something to that effect. All right, then where does this you're the the dead zone running back guru? Tell me where it ends the season. Miles Sanders. Well, that's what seven. I was. That's what I was just going to ask you. I mean, I think that's about right. Uh, Sanders for me feels like a dead zone back again, very similar to like the the Gibson and Montgomery type thing where we've seen the guy play and draft the time buying in. I'm hearing a lot of talk about how there's just so much value in his guaranteed touches and this and that. Well, yeah, he's going to probably score some touchdowns this year. He had zero last year, but. There's a reason drafters aren't buying in. He scored zero touchdowns last year. Like, what is his realistic range? I don't think he has this massive season in him in an offense where he didn't score a touchdown last year that has now added more weapons in A.J. Brown at receiver. Um, and then, you you know, you, you're still taking on risk to take a running back in this range. I mean, you're still passing up quarterbacks in the quarterback window, right? That might be the the clearest thing that you're passing up at this point, which you just talked about how wide receiver starts to thin out, but you are passing up potentially some more wide receiver depth as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think to me, he's still sort of a, a dead zone back. You are getting to where the opportunity cost is less, but I don't want to be all over Miles Sanders. I don't see him as being significantly different than Antonio Gibson going three rounds earlier, but I don't want to be on Antonio Gibson either. The guy that I wanted to ask you about sort of on this token of players that, we don't know what they are yet. 
we joked a lot around the draft about Kenneth Walker, Ken Walker. Now I, you know, I didn't love the pick for the Seahawks, but I liked the prospect quite a bit. And so I've gotten some comments from, from people around the, around the way that it's, that it sort of sounds like I'm going to be completely out on Kenneth Walker. I don't know that I necessarily am. He's the kind of guy that is still, I think pretty clearly in the dead zone and might be the type of rookie that you want to actually target in the dead zone has a strong profile, right? And they did give him strong draft capital. How comfortable are you in with taking him in the sixth round? Cause you're the guy who actually wants to take him and forced me to take him in one of our drafts. <laughs> We did. We did. I snuck in there and, and the, the clock was running out and it was the perfect excuse. We just add Ken Walker to the team. We didn't talk about Hall a lot either. I think both of these guys are going to have their ADPs rise and you don't always want to just pick someone who's going to rise if part of the reason that they rise is that a late season surge in overvaluing running backs is the catalyst. You know, you're not actually going to draft into that. But if you like the profiles for both of these players, we can have this wide range of outcomes. And with Walker, you have a young back who was electric in college, who has that 4-3 speed, who could create big plays at the NFL level. Uh, those are all of the things. And we've had sort of a article series over multiple years based on Blair Andrews' work where if you can get your sort of upper echelon rookie running back in this adp range the chances of hitting are excellent and what it will do for your team is very impressive and so walker is somebody i'm looking to add here i think there's a, a chance still that and this is no secret i mean the seahawks in a perfect world would still make another move at qb the prices on all of their players are going to take a big jump if that happens and if it doesn't happen i don't think they're going to fall a lot because People are going to come around to the fact that, you know, DK Metcalf is a good player. Tyler Lockett is a good player. Now, he's kind of in that range where getting older, needs some of these vertical shots, maybe needs better quarterback play. But even someone like Tyler Lockett, when you're talking about such a good player, is his price going to really get even less expensive as we go along? Noah Fant, who's one of the better tight ends in the NFL and is virtually free, I mean, is he going to get less expensive? So you, you have the situation baked in where I think those guys have the potential to jump if everything stays the same, you're actually getting a decent value where they are. So sort of a, a team-based element there with Walker. The flip side is just that even more there at running back, if they don't deliver him to the goal line, if Rashad Penny plays a lot, you're looking at maybe having a second half of the year impact. But I mean, so many of these guys have been in backfields that are even a little bit more daunting than what Walker finds himself in, in terms of competing with other guys for touches i think that you have to like him there that makes sense so as we look at the you know post dead zone sort of priority zero rb targets these are like round eight round nine round ten guys for me the first names that come to mind from last year this is where james connor was going this is where leonard fournette was going maybe he fournette was going a little bit later but you know, Tony Pollard was in this range last year. He's back in this range. Kareem Hunt was in this range last year. He's back in this range. We have Cordero Patterson has joined this range. We have, you know, Devin Singletary had a good late season. We have guys in, you know, ambiguous backfields, Damian Harris, Chase Edmonds, Melvin Gordon finds himself in this range. Rashad Penny, the, the flip side of everything you just said about Ken Walker. This is a, you know, when you look at the ADP charts, it starts to bunch up here. Drafters know this is an area where we target running backs a little bit more. 
There are not as many running backs going in the dead zone this year. And so it pushes some guys down that maybe have dead zone-ish profiles. We should talk about Miles Sanders as maybe an example of that. But as we start to get into this top area before sort of the, the more late round, you know, contingency-based plays that are really interesting, these more priority zero RB targets when we're coming out of this stretch of drafting a bunch of receivers, who are the names in this range that you really want to target? And this is the group where we start to look at committees and try and figure out the least expensive way to get the most upside. So even if you have a situation where you have a backfield where the starter is in round 10 and you're thinking, okay, well, I've got a starter in round 10 and a backup right next to him, I should take the starter. But the fact that you have his backup later may be a situation where you actually want to take backup backup just to be getting exposure to those particular offenses at the cheapest point. But having said that, I mean, you have Devin Singletary, who's in this elite offense. Now, it hasn't been an offense that's been as favorable for running back scoring. So we do have to keep that kind of as a side note. But I mean, you have a starter who's good. And I've got a lot of extra notes on Devin Singletary on the Road of His Overtime show that we did on this year's James Conner. So I won't put all of those in here for time reasons. But you have Singletary there. And then then we're kind of looking at some of these offenses like the Dolphins, like the Falcons, perhaps the Patriots. But we have situations with the Falcons where we're concerned about the overall quality of the offense and what Patterson did down the stretch last season. But he's there in that round eight range as a starter. You have Damian Harris in that range as a starter. You have Chase Edmonds in this range as a starter. Those backfields are all very muddied. Do you like any of those guys enough to take them as opposed to take other members of the committee at four, five, six round discounts? I would say no on those ones. In this particular range, the guys that I like more, I think are sort of the high profile, good uh, contingency plays, really talented players. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned Tony Pollard and Kareem Hunt, I think, fit that. If if Nick Chubb goes down, does Kareem Hunt get all the work? And similar to the way that we talked about how Chubb maybe doesn't, probably not. But if Kareem Hunt is there, he becomes a really valuable player. And you're getting him a lot cheaper than Chubb. I don't think his, you know, his profile is substantially different necessarily going into a year. Pollard, I've talked a little bit. I don't know how much on this show, but I... I think people are too tied into what happened last year where everyone wanted Pollard to play more and then he wasn't playing more. The Cowboys knew was Zeke's contract. They were stuck with him through 2022. I think they had a lot of incentive to continue to play him in 2021. Hopefully he's playing well enough. Maybe it spurs an ability to move his contract in the offseason or something. This is a year where, number one, they haven't been as successful as they didn't want him to be over the last few years. And number two, it's kind of writing on the wall. This is going to be his last year in Dallas. So, I actually think it's a quite a bit of a different year in terms of how that could play out. I don't think 2021 is necessarily going to be instructive. And so Pollard could play his way. Who's also uh, an impending free agent, by the way, uh, Zeke isn't, but Zeke looks like he'll probably be cut out of that contract after this year. Pollard could play his way into them sort of riding him as much as they can. If he just looks like the better player, I don't know if he can handle a huge workload, right? But he's been very explosive. And if he brings something, Zeke's going to still play for his pass blocking and all of that. But I, I just think the split could be different, right? And they, they made such an effort last year with Pollard. His touches per snap, for example, were really high. When they brought him on the field, 
they design plays for him. They seem to to indicate last year they know they want the ball in his hands. He's explosive. He had a kick return touchdown on Thanksgiving. He did a lot of different things last year that were positive. I like him as sort of finally hitting that breakthrough workload at some point for, for any number of reasons, Zeke getting hurt or, or him just actually taking more of the work this year in 2022 rather than 2021, but we're still getting 2021 prices on him despite a good year, a good year from him. Um, and then the other one is Ronald Jones. We talked a little bit about recently and I didn't mention him just now, but you know, Clyde Edwards, Alaire is going four rounds higher. It looks like Edwards, Alaire is going to have the huge advantage in the passing downs, but we talked on a recent show about, Hey, there's this possibility that if Jones is just the more explosive back. And I think he is. And if he's showing that in the run game, that they'll design some screens for him. He'll be able to get at least some high value touches. He's not going to have this great high value touch profile. Like we were talking about with some of the other, you know, top end running backs earlier in the show. But I think he has a scenario where he can get some high value touches where he starts to be their, their green zone guy, which would be huge in the Kansas city offense. If he's a really efficient runner and he's a bigger or powerful back than CEH, we might expect that anyway. And then if he starts to get at least some screen work and some, devised passing work where he can catch maybe two balls a game and get 30 catches, you know, or the equivalent of 30 catches once he's, you know, built into this role, that would be something that would be a, a, I think a pretty big hit in the 10th round. And so he's another guy I'm looking at more of these better offenses for running back production. I would say when I'm looking at Cleveland and Dallas and Casey, all three of those teams could score a ton of points in the running game. And when you add that kind of talent with it, than the upside especially in particular windows it might be difficult for those backs to maintain that over the course of the season but we saw last year just how dynamic and how much impact you can make if you time it correctly and i mean i'm partial to those guys who went off at the end of last year in terms of singletary and penny and you know even sony michelle but you can definitely make an argument that the players you just mentioned are even more talented and so, you know, do they have the chance to do a similar thing? I think so. You talk about Tony Pollard and how electric he is as a runner. He and Rashad Penny were the only two backs in football last year to average both two and a half or more yards before contact and three yards after contact. You've got the perfect mix there where they can make the first guy miss. They can get into the hole without it closing up. And then they can make a guy miss in the secondary, create more yardage. That's what you're looking to see from a running back just big picture and then talent perspective obviously we love ronald jones how about a couple guys who might be or i think pretty clearly are backups but also sort of fit this talent element michael carter maybe you want to be on both sides of that depending on your draft even though the new york jets are a team that we think could still be a year away but one of the things is it's almost better to be a year early than a year late. If you're a year early and are wrong, then the ADP reflects that. If you're a year late, then you just have to pay for the production that happened the previous year. It doesn't do anything for you. And so if the Jets do break out, we have something. Ramondre Stevenson, the other one, I, for me, it's so tricky to play this Patriots backfield because it's just going to be a fantasy-destroying muddle, right? But... Both of those guys played very well as rookies. They ranked sixth and seventh 
in the NFL in evasion rate last year, just ahead of a couple names in, in Aaron Jones and Alvin Kamara that we talk about as being among the most talented backs in the NFL. Again, if we're talking about going through a hot stretch, those would be names I think where maybe they have the talent to really put up points for you for a two or three week period. I really like that. I wanted to ask you, I, I'm with you on the Patriots. I wanted to ask you about Carter because we, we do really like Hall, but Carter was a guy who had a strong percentage of high value touches last year, had the strong receiving profile coming out of UNC where he played alongside Javante Williams. Part of the reason Javante Williams wasn't catching a lot of balls in college is they were using Carter as sort of the receiving back and they go in and they add a Hall. You can kind of see that they might view Carter as more of the passing downs back. And if something were to happen to Hall, then he could be the kind of guy who shifts into a three down workload. Not, not a guarantee, but that's the way he was used in college. That's the way he was used last year. I mean, they also used him as a runner last year, but they used him enough last year in the passing game, had 36 catches, strong rate of like high value touches per snap and things like that. However you want to cut those numbers, but it looked good in terms of what type of player he is in and of himself. Now, obviously you have, the team situation you have hall on the team and you have you know who knows if the jets are even going to be that good but that's why he's going in the 10th round and, and i like the idea of betting on a guy who played well like you said you're just talking about his evasion percentage there's a lot of things in his profile that look promising when you just look at michael carter as we move into sort of contingency based plays and more zero rb flyer plays who are some i mean i'll i'll, I'll i mean we mentioned isaiah spiller i think he's a really interesting rookie if he does earn that role and at least have some touchdown upside, you've talked throughout the offseason that he had a great receiving profile, didn't do well in the combine, but there's this potential if Eckler misses time for him to sort of consolidate both sides. Justin Jackson doesn't necessarily look likely to be back with the team. He's still a free agent. So they don't necessarily have that like clear backup to the Eckler role that they seem to have last year with Jackson. And so Spiller might be the guy that if he is, working into a one-two punch where where Eckler to miss time that he could consolidate sort of all of the work. Um, I've used the Caitlin Balazs example a couple of times where they, they even did that with Caitlin Balazs a couple of years ago here. So um, they're not entirely stuck to this, you know, big back, small back type system. Rashad White, I mentioned, you just, there's just so much value in the Tampa Bay backfield. Rashad White's profile fits it so perfectly. That's a guy that, I mean, I don't think I'm drafting enough. I think you want to have him everywhere. If Leonard Fournette can't hold up to a big workload again this year, and Fournette has a history of missing time, at least a little bit of time, he's getting up there in age. That would be something uh, that could just be absolutely massive for White. We wouldn't be certain that he would get all of the work. They still have, you know, Keyshawn Vaughn and Gio Bernard kicking around, but the way that those guys were not used last year, I think indicates, and then the draft capital put into White, I think indicates that White has to be thought of pretty favorably as a guy who could potentially step in. There's been people that have said, look, Tom Brady hates rookie running backs. Maybe that's true, but maybe Rashad White is different. You know, his age has been sort of a knock in Dynasty, but maybe he's a little bit more advanced than some of the other rookies. It's There's a lot of uncertainty, right, in, in, in all these running backs. But it's a bet, I think, worth taking when you think about what you could win if you're right in terms of how valuable that Tampa Bay backfield can be. And then recently, Sean, we've talked a little bit about Kenneth Gainwell, but he's another guy who had a really strong rate of high value touches last year. Good profile, worth his way back into some playing time, even into the playoffs. 
after kind of being benched for a period, it seemed like, but they haven't added a lot in Philadelphia. He seems like he's probably the de facto number two behind Miles Sanders. Good young backs, or they, they seem to be good young backs that I think are interesting ones. Are are those guys that you're targeting? Are there other ones that you want to highlight? Yeah, we, we've talked quite a bit about game loss, so I won't go over it all again. But I'm sure it appeals to you that he led the Eagles in yards per route. He was the only guy from that group with meaningful air yards. In a situation where we wouldn't expect the backs to catch a lot of passes with Jalen Hurts there, he actually had 4.9 receiving EP as a rookie. If that were to move up a little bit and he became the starter and there are signs that that's a possibility, I mean, there's a lot of room to beat ADP in terms of his profile. A few people that you didn't mention we have Tyler Algier as maybe a little bit less expensive way to play the Falcons if things break right and he emerges probably over the second half of the season kind of as the bell cow. Now, he wasn't drafted in a place in the reality draft where that seems like the most likely outcome, but his profile could be very effective within the context of what the Atlanta Falcons specifically want to do with their one running game. Another back who could be perfect for what their team is is going to be like this season Naheem Hines everything that you read about the Colts they're talking about how do we find touches for Hines how do we find touches for Hines he's too good he fits this offense too well I mean the Colts don't have a lot in the receiving game and Matt Ryan's career trajectory both in terms of what he's done for pass catching backs in the past and where he is now with sort of your Philip Rivers 2.0 Hines is a little bit tricky for me to draft because there are just some other more exciting guys there but receiving backs, and this is one of the things that Pete said when he was on the show, is that because receiving backs underperformed last year and didn't really fulfill their part of the zero RB equation, there are some guys who are very quality pieces who just don't cost you a lot this season. I think that Hines has to be in that conversation. Daryl Henderson, you know, less expensive than last year, even though he more or less showed that he can do it for a stretch. And if something happens to Acres, that he would be a high-scoring option for you. Again, I don't have a lot of exposure so far, and, and perhaps for me because I had him on teams last year, he did well, and then, you know, you don't get that final outcome. It, it's almost this very unfair psychological kind of trap that we're in with him, where it's like, yeah, we did that. He kind of scored, and then he didn't. Yeah. He didn't win me my league, so in the twelfth right. round, I'm not interested. It's like it's like. It's one of those things where we get we get those anchor, you know, we anchor and we, we have those biases, whether we had the player or not. Sometimes the player's price is pushed up. You can tell by by guys that by drafters that had him the year before, maybe think he's a little bit better than he is. Henderson's on that level, as you're describing. And I'm thinking, well, Acres fans don't like him. And even Henderson fans who had him last year don't really love him. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right. He's a great play. He's a great play. Ben, we need to wrap this up. This has been a fantastic episode. But after the 13th round, do you have a name or two in here? It is almost a situation where after round 13, a switch flips. And it does seem like the position dries up completely. One of the things that you and I do talk a lot about with Pete is this idea that every round you go deeper in a draft, running back is always the best play. I don't know that it necessarily feels like that at this point yet in 2022. Yeah, there's definitely some interesting profiles, I would say. I mean, the very first guy after the end of round 13 is J.D. McKissick. As you were talking about Hines, 
you know, I, when I was looking at some of the stealing signals numbers today, I mean, McKissick just feels like the cheaper way to play Heinz. I mean, Washington brought it back. I know they brought in Brian Robinson, but I'm less concerned about Gibson and Robinson as it relates to McKissick's, you know, pass catching role than I am about Taylor as it relates to Heinz's role. Heinz, the, I think, the better player, um, but and, and probably the better quarterback for pass catching. I mean, McKissick gets Wentz now, who wasn't necessarily great. We know he's going to push it downfield into triple coverage. He's going to push into triple coverage even when he has Jonathan Taylor wide open in the middle of the field. Um, but I, I I, think McKissick's – if you want to play the pass catchers, I mean, they gave him the contract that he was trying to get from the Bills, and I, I, I think they value him, right? And so he's, a, I think, a cheap way to play that pass catching archetype that you were just talking about. But Khalil Herbert also comes in right after that, I think is an interesting sort of handcuff on David Montgomery, who drafters aren't super excited about Herbert looked good last year maybe can work into a little bit of a split if Montgomery gets hurt we would expect that Herbert is probably the the pretty clear handcuff although they did add Darrington Evans this offseason if he ever stays healthy <laughs> it'll be Look Darrington out. Evans season um you know and then some of these other the, the next two right after it, it it does start to dry up so I'm naming basically the guys that were are just here into the 14th but Tyrion Davis Price where he most are look like they're going to be pieces in backfields that are very similar. You have Mostert now in Miami, but with uh, Mike McDaniel and and implementing sort of that San Francisco style there, Tyrion Davis-Price with the 49ers, both those guys I think could have their moments and be interesting pieces of a, a zero RB best ball build. But yeah, I'm with you. There's not a lot of names as I look further down that I'm thrilled about. I mean, Sony Michelle kind of pops out. He looked up, he, you know, pretty solid late last year. He winds up in Miami. There's talk that he could be um, a big piece of that probably rotational backfield in Miami. I mean, yeah, I, I think those are the ways that I want to play Miami. Most certain Michelle, as you, you asked that earlier in, in the, the show, as it related to Chase Edmonds. But yeah, I mean, I, I look at the rest of these backs and I, I'm not sure, man. I don't know. Where are you at? Is there any special names here that pop out to you? I think you're right, and you've got to get some exposure to Tyrion Davis-Price. Marlon Mack is a little bit interesting, and that will be a team where I think the offseason, training camp, preseason will start to give us a little bit more of a sense because there's this possibility that Damian Pierce, who is someone a lot of experts liked a lot, he's there. But the Texans didn't necessarily roll out the red carpet for him in the way that might make you think that he is the focal point for their plans. Marlon Mack, before the Achilles injury, was a very good player. And the Texans need good players. The thing with the Achilles injury is just you can get back, but then it takes a long time, even once you're back, to get the explosiveness we see, and we didn't really talk about Acres early, but he's someone who was hurt by coming back and then just not being himself. And so then you look bad and people aren't as interested after you look bad. Mac has some of that where the Colts try to showcase him for a trade and he's just not back to himself yet. And you, it's going to be hard to showcase someone for a trade when they're playing next to Jonathan Taylor because you're not going to look good, right? He may end up having a workload that will pay at that point, especially if Davis Mills were to somehow have a little bit of a Cinderella season. Probably you don't want to have a lot of exposure to the Texans, but if you do make it 
in round 15. And then to Ernest Johnson going very late. You have two of the best running backs in the NFL ahead of you. Not surprised that you go late, but Johnson, when you jump into the advanced stat explorer and look at just how dynamic Nick Chubb has been over the last several years, Kareem Hunt is, and then the other back who starts to pop up in that same range is Ernest Johnson. So part of that, you're thinking, well, probably there are some things this Cleveland offense is doing to create opportunities for these guys. But if you watched Johnson play the last several years, I mean, there's a reason that they use him when some of those other guys are out and keep it almost a committee because he's a very good player and they've resisted getting away. I mean, he's tried to kind of push his way out, not any kind of uh, overt or uncomfortable way, but I mean, he would like to be free of those other two players so he could go and, and be a starter somewhere. I mean, he's probably that level of talent. So when you're talking about the very last rounds, he's someone to at least have on the radar. And then Ben, I mean, is there a better way to end the show than mentioning that Eno Benjamin is in the NFL? Yeah, I think not. I, I mean, I can I can give you another one who's still in the NFL, Damian Williams, who everyone wants to talk about Cordero Patterson, Tyler Algier, but there's another way to play Atlanta really late. And you're you're not going to, uh, as the case with Daryl Williams, you're not going to give that to be the Chiefs. Is, is this all not sort of reflecting back on Clyde Edwards-Alaire being the only back who can't get it done in Kansas City? <laughs> I suppose so. I suppose so. But, I mean, if Algier's not good, and if Patterson's not necessarily healthy, I mean, there's there's paths to Damian Williams, I think. We know that the fantasy douche is drafting him. Damian Williams was his guy, and he was very good for that stretch in Kansas City. Took them to a Super Bowl title. Yeah, MVP. Should have been the MVP. The big controversy of everyone who took Damian Williams' MVP tickets will tell you that he should have been the MVP of that Super Bowl. He, I mean, he's always been a guy who can catch passes, even going back to Miami. So that's a part of it for me where if I think you need Patterson to miss time, but he would be the pass catching back pretty quickly. And maybe has three down upside at 30. Look, if Patterson could do it last year at his age – He's RB75. Quit making that face. <laughs> so that'll do it for today's episode of Ceiling Bananas. It was so fun to go through the different types of running back bills, the type of players we would like with those bills, the different tiers, how you can play some of these teams, get the players at better prices, get exposure with the least amount of risk, go through some of the advanced stats with Ben Gretsch of Stealing Signals, hearing him site from the stealing signals tool was a lot of fun and also it's just been such a good time to do this look with the dead zone guru himself ben this was awesome everybody thanks for listening if you can subscribe to the feed leave us a rating and review those really help us i'm sean siegel with me as ben gretch you can follow at yards per gretch make sure you sign up for his newsletter stealing signals you can join us over at Rotoviz using the coupon code RBRadio2022 at checkout. You'll get 10% off a one-year subscription. I mentioned a few backs that I like better in Underdog. If you're drafting there with us, use the coupon code Rotoviz. When you sign up, you'll get a 100% deposit match up to $100. We'll chat with you guys soon.